You're listening to Library Lab, the podcast. I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones. Peter Suber is one of the world's leading advocates for open access to research. Journals that are open access typically remove all fees for access, like subscription costs, and permission barriers, like copyrights and licenses to redistribute. And in this way, advocates like Suber argue, libraries and universities can save money and research can move faster, be open to more scrutiny, and help advance careers quickly. The movement for open access has faced uphill battles in the past. Many closed access journals were resistant to the change, but many have converted to open access in the past few years, joining a growing number of newly launched research publications that have been open access from inception. For today's podcast, David Weinberger spoke to Peter Suber about open access and how the role of the library is changing with the growing number of open access research journals. So, Peter, one of, one of the ways of understanding the role of traditional role of libraries has been that when access to many materials is closed, it's uh, in printed journals that you have to pay a lot to subscribe to, that libraries traditionally have been the great portal for open access, which means that as journals and other such uh, materials um, increasingly move to open access, that this has to have – I would imagine, a deep effect on the role and purpose of libraries. Even without open access, librarians have been asking, what's the future of libraries in the digital age? And open access makes the question more acute. If most journals are open access, then what's the role of libraries? If people can gain access without going through a library, if libraries don't have to uh, buy the material, don't have to uh, curate the material. Uh, There are a couple of answers to it. One is that librarians can still do, in the digital age, what they did in the print age. Uh, They can still help people find what they need. They can still uh, curate, but in this case it would be digital material. In the case of open access journals in particular, many libraries include the metadata for those journals in the library catalog system so that patrons who are looking for uh, cutting-edge research, regardless of whether it's open access or total access, will find it all in one place. And then apart from open access journals, there are open access repositories, and most of them are hosted by libraries and maintained by libraries. So librarians have a role in providing open access. Uh, They're not going to be bypassed or cut out of the loop by virtue of open access. They will be major open access providers. I mentioned that librarians host and maintain uh, repositories. Uh, A growing trend is for libraries to publish open access journals, or at least to play a role in the publication of open access journals. Uh, For example, one of my favorite examples is uh, Philosopher's Imprint, published at the University of Michigan. It's edited by the uh, philosophy department in Michigan, and it's published by librarians. Their actual motto is, edited by philosophers, published by librarians. And by published there, what they mean is that once the philosophy faculty on the editorial board approve an article for publication, they simply pass it off to the librarians who deposit it in the University of Michigan Open Access Repository with the appropriate metadata, including metadata indicating that the article was approved by peer review, and then it's open access to the world. So the distribution infrastructure is built into the repository maintained by the librarians, and getting the work into the repository with the appropriate metadata is a job for the librarians. One of the nice things about the model, I'll just mention on the side, is that the philosophers in the philosophy department and the librarians in the library are allowed to do this as part of their job descriptions so that the journal doesn't have to charge anybody anything. It doesn't have to charge readers subscription fees. It doesn't have to charge authors publication fees. It's all subsidized by the university. How inevitable is open access? How thoroughly is it going to sweep through? Uh, Two good questions. Uh, Let's talk about the second first. 
today about 20% of new peer-reviewed journal articles uh, are open access, more or less from birth. That's a minority of new research, but the curve is going upwards. I have reason to doubt that we'll ever reach 100%, but I have strong reason to think that curve will keep climbing, and uh, before long, more new articles than not will be open access. We'll uh, achieve open access as the default for new research. But there are reasons to think that open access at best will coexist with subscription access or toll access. What are those reasons? I mean, the case for open access seems so compelling. Yeah. Um, what's, what, what do you think is likely going to stay closed, stay as a, a for-pay toll? Well, there are some journals that are so prestigious that they'll always be must-haves. And as long as they're must-haves, libraries will find the money to pay for them, especially if they're saving money by virtue of the fact that other journals have converted to open access. Right now, library budgets are terribly squeezed, and libraries have to cancel even titles that they regard as must-haves. But if the libraries experience savings in their serials budgets because many journals are converting to open access, it will be easier for them to pay for the must-have titles that remain. However, let me just add the qualification, as long as it plays its cards right. For example, last year, it tried to raise this, uh, the price for the site lessons for nature journals at the University of California by 400% in one year. And California was so annoyed that it not only threatened to cancel all of its nature journals, but to organize a boycott uh, to encourage other universities to do the same. So even though nature had this built-in, hard-won immunity to cancellation by virtue of its quality and reputation, it was about to be the first title to be canceled, or the next title to be canceled, rather than the last title to be canceled. So it was not playing its cards right. But as long as a high-prestige journal plays its cards right, it could continue to charge a subscription and reach a paying audience forever. Let me push back against that, because there is a, a possible future, as all futures are, I guess, that um, in which a new generation, the upcoming generation, starts to view these high-prestige, closed access journals as vaults into which your research gets locked. You know, it goes into uh, an expensive journal and you vastly cut down its availability. And that means you are marginalizing your research in a way that you don't have to. And so it seems to me conceivable that the next generation will react profoundly against um, the notion that you succeed by publishing in a journal that's so expensive that not everybody can read it. Uh True. On the other hand, uh, there are some variables here that are matters of degree. For example, nature locks up articles to a certain extent by virtue of charging for access. On the other hand, if it's really a must-have journal to be found in almost any library, then the exclusion of potential readers is almost vanishingly small. Plus, nature allows author-initiated self-archiving after a six-month delay. Not enough authors are taking advantage of that, but if uh, authors feel strongly that they don't want to be locked up, then those are the authors who will be taking advantage of that option and making their work open access at least six months after publication. And that uh, reaches the rest of the world, that is, all those people who would like to read the article who don't have a subscription. So um, let's assume that there remains some percentage of um, high-prestige journals. What remains of the traditional library's values within an open access world? You, you've already pointed – so you've pointed to some and, you, and you've raised a new value, which is they can act as publishers of an open access repository or journal. What are the specific values that you think that um, libraries carry forward? Well, one of them is helping individual users find what they want. And another is preservation. In the absence of uh, libraries playing the role of preservation, the job shifts over to publishers – and publishers of digital journals try to take on this role sometimes, but they don't do it very well. They're not experts at it. Moreover, they 
have market incentives for preservation, which means if they decide something won't really be of interest to anybody in 50 years, they may not preserve it. Or if they think they couldn't sell it in 50 years, they might not preserve it. Librarians want to preserve, preserve everything, and they're experts at it. We need librarians to do this. And for librarians to do it, of course, they have to have digital copies. It's not enough for them uh, to uh, funnel users to copies online elsewhere. So libraries need their own copies somehow. And open access facilitates this, by the way, because Libre open access, or open access that permits uses beyond fair use, allows libraries to make their own copies, to host their own copies, and to migrate these copies to new technologies to keep them readable as the technology changes. Those are all necessary for long-term preservation. And I trust librarians to do that job much more than I trust publishers. So one of the things, one of the advantages of uh, online open access uh, work, journals, books, articles, whatever, uh, is that they are sort of inevitably they're embedded in the web and that means that whether the owner of the site that's providing access or owner of the, of the content uh, decides to put up uh, comment boards and other sorts of, uh, sort of social web facilities that even if they don't do that, the, the web can swarm around these articles in um, useful and occasionally not useful ways, or people commenting, linking, and so forth. Um, to what extent do you see that as a, as a core value of OA? And then I have a follow-up question. Well, if I could generalize a bit, one of the core values of OA is to make work subject to mashups, or subject to interconnections, uh, subject to use by software, not just by humans. The narrow example that you gave of making it subject to comment uh, is just part of what could be a much bigger story. In fact, sometimes I think the main purpose of open access is to make work accessible to the machines that serve us rather than to ourselves. Most of our research these days is not done directly with text. It's done uh, through the mediation of software, including search engines. But over time, it'll be done through the mediation of other kinds of software. Uh, I already use some software for summarizing articles that I don't have time to read and I can read 100 summaries in the time it would take to read one article. That's just one example. Text mining is another. Uh, alert services and current awareness systems are others. Uh, if we want access to literature, we want our machines to have access to literature. And our machines only have access, first of all, if there are no price barriers and no permission barriers, but also if there's a kind of uh, structural interoperability so that machines can pull things together that weren't uh, together from birth. Are you seeing... Uh or proposing a increasing the semantics of the uh, of the available content, more metadata, more more agreed upon metadata, ontologies, and the like. Uh, that certainly helps the kind of interoperability and meshing up that I was talking about. On the other hand, I have hopes that as search engines become more intelligent, or as other kinds of software become more intelligent, uh, some kinds of semantic annotation will become less important. To some extent today, uh, semantic tagging is a makeshift until we have more intelligent software that can do without them. Uh, and I like to see both processes work in parallel so that until we have more intelligent software, we'll also have intelligent tagging. So an open access, let's say an article, goes online. It's uh, found through uh, search engines, through some advanced semantic, automated semantic or, uh, work or through manual uh, metadata tagging and um, a rough web of 
comments and linked articles uh, that agree and disagree. Um, it starts getting embedded into the the life and fabric of the web. Um, at that point, so this uh, this is what I, this is the follow up question. At that point, won't we continue to see uh, something like social curation and the um, the socializing of the process of understanding what's what's available and um, what the next thing is that we ought to read? The sort of curatorial uh, expertise that we've looked to libraries for. So we'll, do you see that some, some of the value that libraries traditionally have provided there migrating out onto the social web? In a way, some of that function has migrated out uh, a long time ago, I mean a century or more ago. I went through an article on what I called second-order judgments. Uh, First-order judgments are what articles contain, uh, judgments about what's true. Second-order judgments are about what's worth reading for you, given your interests. And librarians have been traditional sources of second-order judgments. If you're interested in this, you want to take a look at that. But there are lots of other sources of second-order judgments that we had long before the Internet and that were not related to libraries. For example, peer review is a kind of second-order judgment, and it helps us figure out what's worth reading when there's too much to read. The web will provide many other sources of second-order judgment, including recommendation engines. Uh, if you like this, you'll probably like that when the recommendation is based on a kind of uh, algorithmic summary of what other people have looked at. There will be many forms of that, uh, but the fact that they are not mediated by libraries doesn't make that new. Peer review judgments were not mediated by libraries either. So it's very clear talking with you and pretty much reading anything that you've, that you've written that for you open access is not um, merely about you know, sort of a turning of a key or throwing away of a key. Well, I guess throwing away of the lock. <laughs> would be more a better uh, analogy here. Um, it's not merely about sort of the economics of journal publishing, but that that you see um, coming in the wake of this unlocking um, some significant changes in not just libraries, but um, how knowledge is produced and absorbed and what we make of it, and you know, very wide consequences to open access. If I wanted to summarize that, open access is not the end; it's the means. And it's the means to enhance forms of research. Every kind of research uh, will be faster and more useful with open access, uh, sometimes in ways that we can put our finger on today. Namely, there's no barrier between you and the text, and you can read it. And there's no barrier for your software between it and the text. But there are other ways in which it will improve research that are over the horizon. And open access will simply make possible imaginative or creative uh, enhancements to research that we couldn't even dream about today. Once we make this stuff accessible to ourselves and our software, then we open doors that were never opened before. What would it take for you to be enticed into publishing in uh, an article in a closed access journal? And so I'm not – this isn't really about – I don't really mean to ask about you. Uh, I'm wondering what you see as any continuing benefits that uh, an author may – find a justification, legitimate justification for publishing in a closed access journal at this point? The only remaining incentive to publish in a toll access journal is its prestige. Of course, not all toll access journals have prestige or have enough prestige, but some of them uh, have a lot of prestige. Some of them have prestige exceeding uh, that of just about any open access journal. And for career advancement, this is a very serious consideration. Uh, I've never argued that prestige is an illusion and that open access people should simply get over their desire for prestige. It matters a lot, and it matters a lot because it matters for the existing system of incentives. And if you really want to be promoted or tenured, you have to publish in prestigious journals. Uh, what too many scholars don't yet understand 
is that in most cases, not every case, but more often than not, you can publish in a prestigious toll access journal and still make your peer-reviewed manuscript open access. You simply have to take a step yourself. The journal doesn't do it, but it allows you to do it on your own. As with, as you mentioned, uh, Nature uh, magazine does. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as the average open access journal gains the prestige of the average toll access journal, or in a given field, when there are high-prestige open access journals uh, on a par with high-prestige toll access journals, then the toll access journals will have lost their only remaining advantage. And that's when we'll see uh, mass migration of authors from toll access journals to open access journals, which are superior in every way, except sometimes uh, with respect to prestige. And, and just to be clear, the uh, high-prestige open access journals uh, maintain their prestige, um, at least in part, by providing rigorous peer review. Yes, that's certainly part of it. Uh, prestige is a complicated phenomenon. It's a mix of quality and measurable impact and reputation. Quality has no objective measurement. It's kind of unfortunate. We would all benefit if we had one, but we all understand why we don't. We use citation impact sometimes as a surrogate for quality. It's a bad surrogate for quality, but it's a, a good measurement of citation impact. As long as we understand that's what it measures and that it can differ from quality, then we're okay. And then reputation is different from both of them. And reputation can be based on former quality or former impact rather than present quality and present impact. It can be based on misrepresentations. Uh, it can be obsolete. It can be true. It can be wishful thinking. Uh, it could be hyped by marketing. Overall, prestige is a mix of all those things. But it's real. And you can be rewarded for publishing in a prestigious journal regardless of the components that make up that prestige. And I don't want anybody to lose out on those rewards. Uh, long term, I do want to change the incentives that affect what authors do in order to be promoted and tenured. And we can do that without lowering standards, without changing what we mean by quality. And we can make it crystal clear that we're not affecting quality standards. But that's long term. Short term, we have to work within the incentives of the existing system, uh, which means we have to accept prestige. We even have to accept the ways we mismeasure prestige by measuring citation impact. Fortunately, open access journals do very well in the citation impact game because there's good evidence that open access articles are cited more often than toll access articles, even when we control for the venue. Articles published in the same issue of the same journal that are open access tend to be cited more often than articles that are not open access. So journals that are open access tend to see a rise in their journal impact factor which, as I say, many people mistake as a measurement of quality. Peter, I, uh, thank you so much. I remain a fan of you and your work. Oh, thanks, David. Peter Suber is a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, a research professor of philosophy at Earlham College, and an advocate for open access to research. This podcast was brought to you from the Harvard Library Innovation Lab at Harvard Law School. In the coming months, we'll be interviewing a number of innovators, scholars, and publishers about the future of the written word. If you like this episode, why not follow along with us at librarylab.law.harvard.edu, where you can find out more about our work, including information on today's episode, join a discussion, and share this podcast with others. This show was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and David Weinberger, with the support of the Harvard Law School.